This is the Westwards podcast, a fortnightly production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. Western Sydney is located on the traditional lands of the Darug, Gunungurra and Tharawal nations, and we acknowledge and offer our respects to all Indigenous people and to their Elders past, present and emerging. Opinions and views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the Westwards organisation. If you'd like to ask questions, offer feedback or simply learn more about what we do at Westwards, please visit westwards.com.au. All right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to today's Westwards podcast. I'm James, I'm producer here and I'm with uh, our associate producer Chris. How are you Chris? I'm doing pretty well. How are you settling in? I feel like I settled. You've settled? You're settled? That's good. How long have you been? What is it? This your fourth week now or something? Yeah, something like something that. Like that. Fourth or fifth Probably week? even more because I started at the end of September. Well there you and go. And now well and truly into November. We are. We're into the second week of November so big weekend. We can't get too political except to say... Yeah. Actually, i got something for that. Hang on, you ready? There we go. How's that? Woo! So, um, because, uh, you know, for people everywhere to see someone like Kamala Harris achieve what she has, as well as Mr Biden. President-elect. President-elect Biden. Biden. But, um, you know, just on a personal level, it must be nice for you as a Native American and African American background to see someone like Kamala Harris... Go it's, to where she's gone? Yeah, and no, it's really nice actually to see a woman in that position. That too. She, a lot of firsts. A lot of firsts. Mm, Let's good. go and see what she does with it. Absolutely. Policy first. The reason we're here today, specifically right here, right now, is to bring you a podcast that's about a week late. That's my fault. That's completely your fault. I was ready to go. I, I had were. everything prepared. Yeah. Uh, it's been one of those years, hasn't it, folks? Um, not, and, and in fact, we've, we're going to talk about this a bit more in, in a little while, but it's, it's NAIDOC week this week. It is. And ordinarily it would have been in, I think, July? But yeah, no, I completely was surprised the other day because I haven't been on top of it and then my daughter came home going, oh, we can wear special shirts next week. And I was like, oh, oh. Because oh. usually it happens in the middle of <laughs> AFL season, so they have a big AFL yeah. ga- weekend and the whole bit. Um, yeah, so but, I, but I understand. Due to COVID. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. Because ordinarily there'd be a, a host city as well, and they, they're not doing that this time. Well, most of the events I've noticed are online, so which is good and bad. That's how we do it these days, mm-hmm. apparently. Uh, but we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. Uh, but anyway, so it's been. I guess that's my segue to say it's been a big year, hence it was a big week, like every week has been. Uh, and so you had a quote already to go for me, didn't you? We, 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 we changed it up a bit this, this time. We, rather than me throwing some quote unbidden at Chris and getting her to think very quickly on her feet about uh, the relevance or otherwise I've said quote, uh, today she's going to do it to me. So we had one good to go last week. And so we're just going to do that one, I guess. No, we're not. We're not? We're oh, not. you changed it up as well. Well, what was last week's? Do you remember? Well, last week's, 
I was going for the whole political feel because uh, we were obsessed and so I, I might still like throw it on you later. Okay, but sure. But I had a whole, you know, political Jimmy Carter vibe mm, going on. Mm. Peace, diplomacy, all that sort of Jimmy crap. Jimmy Carter, one of the other one few the people other. who have not lasted a second, got to a second term. No, but somebody that continued his whole entire life um, actually doing the job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. You so had a political one, but now you've had to change it up because we've gone a week later. Yeah, because we've gone a week later. Mm. So now we are into NADOC week, which I've been like doing posts all morning. Mm. And so I chose one of my favourite books that I'm in the middle of at the moment. And it is from Professor Eileen Morton Robinson. Right. And it is from her book, uh, Talking Up to the White Woman. Mm-hmm. which has just been re-released this year. You know I'm not a white woman, right? <laughs> There's so much to say, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we'll move on. We'll carry on. Um, and my quote is, as long as whiteness remains invisible, in analysis, race is the prism reserved for the other. Okay. I'm going to need you to read that for me again. Okay. As long as whiteness remains invisible, mm. in analysis, race is the prison reserved for the other. Mm. I'm not quite sure how to respond to this. So the way that I've dissected that, because mm. I sat with this for quite a while, a couple of weeks ago. Well, it's one of those lines that has all these little tentacles Texture. reaching into yeah. all these different things. So that's why I'm a little bit... So this book like particularly speaks to white feminism, mm-hmm. which is just what we've what we've been taught is just feminism. Um, but she makes the case in this book is that all feminism is white feminism, mm. and that it only because it comes and originates from um, the standpoint of a middle class white woman that it it in effect erases all other feminism for, for like black women especially if, or for indigenous women because it doesn't, it doesn't talk to their needs. So what she's talking about here is something that's talked about quite often in a lot of um, sort of cultural um, discussion which is that if you, don't, if you don't acknowledge whiteness then race just becomes a topic for anybody who is not white. Right. I mean, if we can just go back to the, something you said a second ago about the uh, about feminism being for middle class white women. Yeah. Um, what what I hear when I what what I see when I hear that is, and and I, I I'm sure this isn't terribly nuanced, but the idea that all of those gains that were made through the 50s and 60s for women were to liberate the white woman from having to do all the domestic duties, if you like, mm. but nobody else was. Is that yeah? Is that sort of Yeah, I, absolutely. Absolutely. So the things that were identified as needs um, weren't holistically dealt with. So they didn't include everybody. Was Why do you think that was? Were, were black women simply not included in the conversation? No, well, they haven't been at all. And even even Eileen Morton Robinson's um, theory in this book was extremely unpopular within feminist circles because she, she made really uncomfortable points throughout the book. And um, she speaks at the beginning of, 
I like this new release that she has because she speaks throughout the foreword of this one of how um, she couldn't even get a job in the university system over here. Nobody would have her to speak at their university and it wasn't until the international university started picking her up and asking her to come over and talk that um, she started getting any traction here in Australia at all because it made the um, sort of feminist school within the um, academy very, very uncomfortable. Um, So it's only now that she's kind of getting the recognition for her, you know, really highly nuanced work. It's really well thought about and it's not blame game work. It's just, okay, let's pick apart the pieces of this and... um, so what implications do you think this has for for people who are writing, telling stories, creating? Mm. I think the same thing probably that I've been talking about a lot this year, which is just getting out there and making sure that your conversations are with lots of different demographics of people. So the, the things that you're saying don't just apply to you or apply to your something that you've imagined, your imagined connection to whatever topic it is that you're covering, I think it's really important to have those conversations with all those different types of people to make sure that your views have some sort of legs in reality um, and and really hear it, mm. sit through the uncomfortable conversations. Well, that, I guess that's what I was, that's the point I was about to make was that, you know, to, if we want to loop back to, to what uh, President-elect Biden said <laughs> the other night in his speech... And, and and president vice president elect Kamala Harris said a similar thing the uh, the only way forward really is to be being charitable listeners and actually not mm. just talking over each other but sitting back and and having a listen it's a real skill it is it's not one that was present in my house growing up i know that much <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you want to go further into that? No, not really. <laughs> I don't know. Just picture picture the um, fibro house in Marylands with a big Irish Catholic family of nine children screaming across the table at each other. Everybody's opinion more more valid than the other person. <laughs> so that's that's my visual for you. Well, we've we've all seen um, Father Ted, so we know how Irish people shouting at each other goes. Right? <laughs> I love that show. <laughs> So um, okay, so what's what's the name of the uh, writer you just quoted for us again? Just for the that listeners? was Eileen Morton Robinson, and the book is and talking up to the white woman. Talking up to the white woman. It's not an easy read. It's an academic read, but it's not to the it's not to the nth degree of a lot of academic reads. It's written in um, plain English, so it's not high and fluting, um, and she's talking very much to um, her community. And who publishes it? That oh, is from the University of Queensland Press. Yeah, my old alma mater. Your Martin. old yeah. alma mater. Yeah, is she an Australian writer? American? She is. She is? Wow. Yeah. And is this, is this book getting traction overseas as well? This has had traction overseas since she first wrote it. So how old is this book? 20 years anniversary this year. Oh, there you go. It was her, it was her um, PhD thesis all right well thank you for that that's all right i didn't actually have much to say about the the quote because it it really i didn't feel like i had no it's one of those things you have to sit with and let it marinate yeah yeah Yeah. so it actually it actually speaks to um in um one of the books how to be anti-racist it mm -hmm. speaks to um 
the creation of race in the first place um, and knowledge around that, being, being um, getting some understanding around the creation of the terminology of race and why it was created in the first place. It kind of speaks to that idea of, of race was this thing to keep certain people in place. It wasn't... It wasn't part of our language before that. No, I mean, I've heard heard some people say that there's a, there was, if you go way back far enough in our anthropology, that there was a there was an evolutionary advantage to identifying the other and and whatever. Yeah, of course. But um, you know, we we've evolved in lots of other ways. We should probably evolve in all these ways as well. So that feels like a fairly uh, convenient segue to. The thing we were talking about a moment ago, uh, NADOC week, which as we said is normally held in July, but this year it's this week. Um, NADOC of course stands for National Aborigines and Islanders Day Observance Committee. So it's an organisation as much as anything, but it has become this kind of, well, a a week of events. Um, What what more can you tell us about this, Chris? Well... The theme this year is always was, always will be, which has been an ongoing theme with a lot of the um, First Nations work and First Nations conversation around sovereignty mm-hmm. this year, mm-hmm. um, which is which is still very much in progress and very much um, kind of gaining gaining more. Um, you know, kind of like the tumbleweed effect. It's as people gain more knowledge about themselves and their culture, um, they're feeling more um, able to have conversations and to start to get their head around what the actual issues are, especially sitting within the society that they're sitting um, within and without at the moment. Um so this week, all I've seen online tends to be mainly online events um, and online presentations due to COVID. So where whereas it would normally be a lot of community events this year, um, you just have a lot of a lot of opportunity, which is kind of good. You have an opportunity to jump around and have a look at what's going on everywhere. Um, I've noticed for us, Parramatta City Council mm-hmm. has a few things online. They have a, a Watermi Mitiga uh, Aboriginal Cultural Walk. Yep. And they also have like heaps of learning activities and stuff for kids. So they have like learn Darug words at home. Uh, they have a colouring ebook. They have a kids weaving art session. And there's not a hell of a lot more around. Like I. I was looking, looking, at, looking at a lot of councils who didn't actually have much up. Like I say, it's been one of those years, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Which is surprising. It's normally like more of a big thing. So. Well, if you do want, if anyone listening does want to find out what else is around, um, NADOC, N-A-I-D-O-C dot org dot au has a whole list of events and and so forth. I think for the newsletter, you're preparing a, a shout out to a number of people we've worked with in the past of Indigenous background? Yeah, so um, not only for the newsletter but what I was going to do every day is kind of visit upon um, different different um, writers and illustrators that we've worked with, mm. different storytellers. So today I'm looking at Jasmine Seymour and Leanne Mulgawatts. I know you have a lot 
Yes. A lot to say oh, about that. Oh, I've got a huge amount to say yeah. about that. Um, of course, uh, Leanne and Jasmine. Jasmine's a teacher at um, Riverston Public, but she also was named the CBC Children's Book Council uh, Best New Artist recently. And mm. their book, Kui Mitigar, is a beautiful piece uh, that sort of takes us on a journey across Darug country but and beyond. Uh, and then there's also Baby Business, which Jasmine did on her own, illustrations and, and words, um, both published by Margabala, and that's a gorgeous book as well. Um, you sort of, as a, as a man reading it, you do feel a little bit like you've been offered a real insight into something. It's like, you're not meant to see this, but, you know, we'll make an honorary woman for the mo- or an honorary <laughs> female for the, the time you read this book. It's, it's really quite beautiful. And it's been a very strong year for First Nations books, especially in the children's industry. Especially in the children's section. There's been some very strong stuff. Um, it's been not, not least of all being Young Dark Emu by um, Bruce, Pascoe. Bruce Pascoe. Sitting and on my desk right now. It's a stunning book, yeah. And there's a few others as well, the Cheeky Dogs books and, and so forth. So. Yeah. No, and one thing that I love at the moment is like when you go inside your local independent bookstore, mm. um, quite a few of them had like massive stands celebrating um, First Nations literature as well, which is fantastic. It's very visual. Um, and the art in it is just Yeah, and you've also got stunning. Bo- books like um, Ghost Bird by Lisa Fuller that that was an honour book this year in the mm. CBC as well, from also by UQP. Uh, so, yeah, First Nations... Um, ah, that reminds me as well. Mm. There's a breakfast tomorrow, breakfast talk with uh, Tara Jane Win- June Winch ah. um, through Business Chicks as well. So there's quite a few of those. Yeah, yeah, Tara, she's a superstar. Oh, and I guess I should mention that while we're talking about, about this, that uh, our kitten club of a week ago was... Uh, was Judith Nungala Crispin, who is a was our recent winner of the Blake Prize, but she's um, a Pangarang woman, and so Judith was our guest, and she's lovely, and she had a lot of interesting things to say, not least of all about the whole um, discovering your indigenous side when you're just on the younger side of reaching middle age, and, mm. and how that changes your the way you look at the world and, and, and all that. So Such a common story that Judith was telling, though, mm. is that that um, being lied to. And I was actually talking to a friend about this this weekend because um, she's done a DNA thing ah. and has found the whole other half of her family because um, her mother was a drug addict and so she um, lost half her family because her dad had taken her away. Um and we were talking about lies in families. Mm. And I was saying it's really interesting, though, because they would have done it because they thought that they were protecting you from yep. something. Mm. So it's done out of this this love, but it can be ultimately um, taking Damaging. something from yeah, it. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so we recommend uh, that if you want to have a listen to that, go to our... Uh, Westwards official YouTube page and uh, check out the latest Kitten Club with uh, Judith Nanga. <laughs> <laughs> Let me take it from you. It's Judith Nangala, Nangala Crispin. Crispin. There you go. And I, <laughs> I've spoken to Judith so many times and I very rarely get her name wrong. I, I struggle with the Bapangarang thing, but um, getting her name wrong is not something I normally do, so it's been a big weekend. 
How, how late were you waiting up for the election? Like, I, I was waiting up till four. And I didn't nine. wait up. Are you crazy? I'm going to find out when it happens. Call yourself an American. Come on. I don't call myself an okay, American. Okay, fair enough then. <laughs> <laughs> you don't call yourself an American either. No, I don't. But I have, uh, I've got some very dear friends. And my best friend lives in Chicago. And he said they've been sheltering in, at home, sheltering in place. Mm. Not just from coronavirus, but from the threats of what they felt could happen. Yeah. And fortunately, up until now, it's been minimal, the um, the backlash in terms of physical violence. But uh, anyway, they're still not out of the woods, are they? No, but I feel a lot better about it. feel a lot more hopeful. I was going to send my sister a message and, and um, just to make her laugh and say that our dad probably would have voted for Trump. <laughs> Do you think he would have? He would have voted for Trump. And I'm like, I was going to say to her, just to piss you off, he would have done it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Anyway, God bless him. God bless him indeed. Um, okay, so what other news have we got, Chris? Uh, Paralanes is coming up. Paralanes. Tell us about that. Um, James, you, mm-hmm. myself and Aisha. Aisha Ali, yeah. Aisha Ali. We're so fortunate as to um, produce some works which have now been animated mm-hmm. and they're going to be shown, let me just bring up the dates, they're going to be shown in Parramatta in the lanes. You wouldn't guess that from the um, name of <laughs> Paralanes, would you? No, it's very it's very opaque, that name. Um, but they're being shown and there's a whole lot of other activities and the online um, online events as well mm-hmm. between 17 to the 21st of November um, they've got music they have lots of different food which is always good mm-hmm. um, and they have lots of art public art exhibitions and there's some live um, performances so the writing that you and I did and Aisha was, was about, ba- food. about food what was yours about mine was about all the different emotional connections that we have to food mm-hmm. and it starts off with my um, my experience of my grandparents overcooking food, particularly um, beans. Beans, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. For, my, for me, it was chocos. My mum used to cook chocos till they were dead and, <laughs> and I don't know if, if, if our listeners out there have enjoyed a good choco. I very much doubt it because I don't think it's possible but... <laughs> but um, all the butter in the world won't won't uh, bring one of those bad boys back. To you life. wouldn't believe I got in a discussion about chocos the other day, and somebody was saying that their mother had cooked them so well that they loved chocos, and all I could see was the chocos that used to grow over my um, grandparents' fence from the like neighbours' yard. Green tree frogs hanging out. Yeah, and yeah. nobody ate them. I don't even understand why that was still there. I'm told that if you get them when they're really young, like you know, the size of little chilies. And you stir-fry them, they're pretty good. But, you know, I don't know, you can pretty much hide anything in a stir-fry, can't you? I could cook them and make them taste good. Could you? Yeah. I'm confident in that. Okay. And didn't I hear somewhere along the line that they were used in um, McDonald's? McDonald's apple pies. Apple pies. Yeah, yeah, so-called pies. Although, you know, as you get older, I guess you do, your your tastes evolve. When I was in the States, in Maryland, I, um, I had the best Brussels sprouts I've ever had in my life. Well, and now I've now I've learned to make them that way, yeah. the, the Maryland way. So yeah, you. So here's a tip, folks. How do you make them? Here's how I do it. You don't want the big, don't want them too big. They've got to be quite small, mm. so they're not woody. Steam them just for a little while, 
not too much, just thin them a little bit. And then I chuck them in a hot pan with a little bit of butter and, st- and roll them around and then put in some maple syrup. Oh. And then just as the maple syrup's starting to really kind caramelize. of caramelise, you throw in some slivered almonds. Toss that around. Hey, baby. What? Oh. Does it sound good? That sounds unreal. It, it is really, really good. Yeah, that yeah. sounds unreal. And you know, you can buy you can buy frozen Brussels sprouts at Coles for like two dollars for a big I've bag. I've got some growing in my oh, garden yeah. right now. I don't even know what the Brussels sprout is. Is it just like an un, is it like an immature cabbage? No, it's not. It's, it's an its actual plant. It's mm. its own thing. It grows so it's a cruciferous vegetable like the broccoli and like the um, cabbage. Mm. Um, it's a brassica. And so it grows in a tall um, stalk huh. and with leaves mm. and they grow off the side like it's the flowers. Like a, like a kind of cabbage shish almost. Yeah, like it's pretty cool. <laughs> cabbage shish. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I just, um, they're, they're funny little buggers, aren't they? They really are. They're the but, weirdest but thing. But when they're done well, they're so tasty. Although, you know, as I've said before, I, I learnt very early on you couldn't hide one in a glass of milk. No, no, no. I tried as well. <laughs> It ended up under the table. But that was because it got the same treatment as the beans I discovered. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You know, back to your piece, the, the beans, they boiled till they were grey, right? Yeah, man. Like, that's one thing growing up in a household that was, you know, nine – my mum was the eldest of nine children and we still lived in my grandparents' house. And all the food just got put on the stove at, like, five o'clock in the afternoon and it stayed there till everybody came home. <laughs> Well, my mum always used a pressure cooker, which yeah, that was popular which cooks in our house it, overcooks too. it and then continues to overcook it. Yeah. yeah, no, but that was mainly used for corned beef in our house. Oh no, no mm-hmm. that's not good. Um, my my wife, she's she's British uh, by birth, and for years and years and years, she I'd I'd make dinner and I'd say, "Do you want peas?" No, I don't want peas. Don't want peas. Till one day, I said, "You haven't tried my peas," and even though they were frozen, they're like just blanched and thrown on the plate. And she went. Oh my god, these are so tasty and sweet. I said, I know. She said, mine are always grey. And I was like, <laughs> That's yeah. what happened. Yeah, when I came back home to my grandparents' place after living away for a really long period of time, and my pop put dinner down in front of me, and I was like, Oh, this is why I didn't like the food. It's really, really overcooked. Something that I didn't actually realise until that point. Mm. Yeah. What was your poem about for Paralyzed? Oh, mine. Um, it was a. It was really. It's more a kind of um, instruction guide on how to prepare bread for your open house when you're selling a property. Because there's that thing, you know, people talk about you put on bread or coffee or both. Or you cook a cake. Or you cook a cake so that when people walk in, there's suddenly this smell. Like, yeah, this smell that just makes you go. Ooh. Um, I have to buy this house. I have to buy this house. And and speaking of buying houses. A friend of mine bought a house near Byron Bay not that long ago. His name is Tristan Banks. Ooh. So how's that for a segue to our next section? That was is, just so not intentional. It was so good. Um, so Tristan Banks is a long-time friend of Westwood's. He is also from Western Sydney originally. He grew up in the Blue Mountains, went to Springer's High, as he calls it, Springer's mm. High. Um, he'll say to me when I talk to him, how's Springer's? And I go, I don't know, it's just... Springer. I drive through, I don't stop. <laughs> no, no. But he's, he wrote a book called Detention and uh, he's done a reading for us recently on YouTube. Uh, and so we're going to play his uh, reading right now. Uh, so this is Tristan Banks reading his 
That's an excerpt from his book, Detention. Hi, I'm Tristan Banks. I'm the author of Two Wolves and The Fall and Detention. And I wanted to share with you the first chapter of Detention. It's a story about a kid who escapes from an immigration detention center early one morning with her family and about 50 other people. But the escape goes wrong, an alarm goes up, there is smoke bombs, there are people being tackled to the ground. But Seema's dad told her to run no matter what. So she does. She runs over the road, into the bush, and she hides out in a local school. And the school goes into lockdown. And during the lockdown, a kid finds her hiding on school grounds. And he has to decide whether he's going to dob her in and have her sent back into the immigration detention centre, or if he can possibly help her get away, and she has to decide if she can trust him. Now here's the first chapter of Detention. It's called Escape, 5.28am. Seymour watches the man carefully as he snips fence wires one by one. He's skinny, nervous, his shaved head slick with sweat and glowing silver in the moonlight. His tattooed hands squeeze the sharp cutters closed, the gap looks almost wide enough to get through now. Seema and her family are pressed to the rough, cold ground among about 50 others. They lie in the gap between two tall fences designed to keep them in. The outer fence is the only thing separating them from freedom now. They wait. They become very good at that. Seema hears a noise, the scuff of boot on gravel. She glances over her shoulder, through the inner fence and beneath the portable dormitory building to the path where a guard will walk by at any moment. Hurry, she thinks, urging the protester to work faster. She thinks his name is Ed, an Aussie guy. He's been camping outside the centre all week with the others. Snip. Dad rests his hand on Seema's back, his face crisscrossed with diamond fence shadows. I love you very much, he whispers. Remember, no matter what you run, don't stop till you get to the trees. The baby coughs quietly and Mum gently pats her back and soothes her. Shh, shh, shh. Layla is two months old. She's been coughing since the day she was born. If she cries now, it'll be disastrous. Mum had argued against the escape, but Dad had convinced her that to stay meant almost certain death. Tonight they would be sent home, deported. Fifty people from this centre alone, hundreds all up. Snip. The protester pries the fence wide. Another one, Jasmine, pulls open the other side. She motions for them to hurry. Two families climb through before it's Mum, Layla, Dad and Seema's turn. Seema squeezes through the narrow opening, head first, scratching and scraping her ears on the sharp-cut metal. She always thought her ears were too sticky-outy. Wingbats, she called them. Dad had assured her many times that her ears were not wingbats and that they stuck out just the perfect amount. I knew he was lying, Seema thinks. She flattens herself to the ground again. Feels different out here. She peers through the low-hanging fog towards the road and the promise of freedom. Come, Dad whispers, crawling past. She follows mum and dad along the fence line, wriggling on her belly through the patchy, clumpy grass. Rocks graze and gouge her arms and legs. But she doesn't feel it. Fear masks the pain. Deep, bone-shaking fear. Dozens of other detainees follow her along the base of the fence. Her father's thick-soled shoes stop sharp. Seema almost headbutts them. To her left, in the gap beneath the dorm, the one where Sadia, her best friend, sleeps, Seema sees the black-booted feet of the guard walking towards the corner of the compound. The guard is going in the same direction that she and the others are heading. They wait, watch, till the boots turn and walk back along the far side of the buildings. Must be the guard's changeover time. 5.30. This is it. The human chain starts to move again and Seema low crawls along the dark night ground. Double time now. 
Once they reach the corner, the plan is to run across about 30 metres of open grass to the nearest trees close to the road. Dad and some of the other men have been watching, thinking, planning, quietly communicating with the protesters through the fence over the past few days to hatch this plan. Dad hates to break the law, but he makes an exception when his family's lives are on the line. We're good people in a bad situation. That's what Mum always said. Dad's shoes kick up a puff of dust which tickles Seema's nose. She feels a sneeze coming. She stops crawling, squeezes her nose hard. Someone behind taps her ankle to tell her to keep moving. The sneeze twists and turns, painfully stabbing the inside of her nose. Seema never sneezes just once. Always five, six times and loud. The person behind taps her ankle urgently now. Dad, Mum and Layla move further and further ahead. Stinging tears run from Seema's eyes and she knows she won't be able to keep it in. Years of struggle, days of planning. This escape their only hope. And a sneeze, five sneezes probably, will be their undoing. Not just for her and her family, but for all of them. She pinches the top of her nose so hard the bone might break. The people behind start to crawl past Seema, filling the gap between her and her family. Then, as quickly as it arrived, the sneeze is gone. She slowly releases her grip, waits, rubs her face and nose. Through the double fence, she sees a guard's boots coming back towards the corner now. She starts moving, joining the chain again. Then, with no warning, choo! She covers her nose with one hand. Then three more muffled sneezes. So loud. Silence. Everyone stops. The human chain lies dead still on the ground. Seema hears fast-moving footsteps up ahead at the corner, the guard. He drops his cigarette. A plume of smoke rises like a mini-mushroom cloud to the moths swarming the light above him. He moves to the fence, flicks on his torch, shines it in the eyes of Seema and nearly 50 others lying motionless on the ground outside. Escape! The guard shouts. Run! Dad screams. So that was Tristan Banks reading from his uh, book Detention. You know what? You can tell that he's worked in film, can't you? Yeah, he's very he's very step by step, kind of the visual aspects. And also, just the he's almost got like that that horror jump cut thing where you're gonna sneeze, gonna sneeze, gonna sneeze. No, she doesn't sneeze, and then you go, oh yeah, she's gonna sneeze, bang, and, and yeah, it all and kicks it off. Out. Yeah, yeah. It's beautifully paced. So, um, so that's uh, Tristan Banks reading Detention, and that's on YouTube. It's on YouTube on YouTube of Westwards Official. Yes, it is. So what else have we got, uh, Chris, before we, before we wrap up for today? Don't have anything um, in person, but we've still got all our online programs mm-hmm. going on. We've still got um, our after-school creative writing classes going on, which I've actually still had some interest in joining. They're better parents than me because I kind of write off the rest of the year at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have our latest reading this week is... By Rosalind McFarland, mm-hmm. and that's of all the lives we've lived. We've also got a couple of other readings. We've still got Ursula Dubasarsky's up, and a few others as well. Um, oh, and uh, we've got the announcement of the Blacktown City Mayoral uh, R- Creative Writing Prize is coming out uh, fairly soon, isn't mm, it? The and, and the um, emerging fellowships. The emerging as well. fellowships. We will be able to next. Um, Next podcast, we'll be able to announce who those three people are and what yeah. they're working on. In actual fact, is it three or is it four? Ooh. Ooh. Wait and find out. Yeah, it might be four. 
Anyway, we'll... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's four now. It, it sounds like it's going to be four, doesn't it? Yeah. Anyway, uh, so thank you very much for that, Chris, as always. Uh, thank you to our listeners. Uh, yeah. You can check out any of our, uh, our material on our website, which is www.westwords.com.au That's the one. And as we always say on this podcast, happy creating. Thank you.